From the Blue Ridge Mountains to the Chesapeake Bay, Virginia is a mecca for outdoor travel and adventure. Virginia Outdoor Adventures podcast is the ultimate guide for local outdoor recreation, including hiking, camping, kayaking, and so much more. Get the information and the inspiration to plan your own adventure right here in Virginia. I'm your host, Jessica Bowser. Once used by our ancestors as a means of survival, foraging for wild edible plants is surging in popularity among outdoor enthusiasts. Whether it's to collect food, maintain a healthy lifestyle, learn about native plants, or just spend more time outside, foraging is a way to connect with the landscape and carry on a tradition that dates to the beginning of human existence. Tim McWelch, owner of Advanced Survival Training, covers the basics of foraging, including how to safely identify plants, examples of common wild edibles, where and when to forage, conservation techniques, and precautions to take before consuming your finds. You'll want to have your notepad ready because this episode is chock full of information to get you started in the world of foraging. Let's go. Virginia Outdoor Adventures is sponsored by the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. DWR is your conservation agency to connect you to outdoor recreation opportunities, manage wildlife, and protect you while you enjoy the outdoors. The outdoors are better together when we restore, explore, and protect. Learn more by clicking Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources in your show notes. Tim, welcome to Virginia Outdoor Adventures. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for having me. What do you love about Virginia's outdoors? Virginia outdoors, it feels like home. I grew up here. I've spent my whole life here and I've been to other places, but I don't want to stay there. I I always want to come home. What inspired you to start advanced survival training? So when I was a little kid here in Virginia, I I grew up on a farm and we were always foraging and and doing stuff outside and going fishing and and just, you know, being part of being part of nature, you know, being out, being out and uh, and enjoying the weather and, you know, everything that, that the landscape had to offer. And so I I started learning how to forage from a young age. I started getting interested in outdoor skills, especially self-reliance and, and, and survival type skills when I was a teenager. And then I started teaching that information in 1995 when I did my first Boy Scout troop meeting, little, little talk on how to do friction fire. And I I brought a bunch of Baudrill kits and we made fires and and, um, and then I just kept going from there. I, I kept teaching and, and um, working with whoever would, would have me come out and do a program for the kids. And then eventually I started doing programs for the grownups. In 1997, I ran my first adult-only outdoor skills class. It was a three-day primitive skills class going through shelter, water, fire, food, tools, all the different things that you need to survive out in the wild. And here we are, uh, 2022, and still going strong. Your classes are so much fun. I want to thank you for inviting me to the most recent wild edibles course that you had at Sky Meadow State Park not too long ago. I couldn't believe how many people showed up to that, Tim. It was pouring rain and the forecast was rain all day. And I think there were over 25 people there. This is obviously something that people are really interested in. They are. Yeah, I I think for for once in in my life, I'm on trend. Uh, Take a picture. It probably (laughs) won't last. But, but people are interested in foraging right now. And it's, it's something that I think people have recognized as an interesting skill set 
that they just didn't know. It's something that their parents might not have known. Maybe their grandparents didn't even know. But for the majority of, of the history of, of humanity, we have been foragers. We've gone out and found food out on the landscape. That was the grocery store before there was ever the first grocery store. And so people, I think, recognize, like, you know what? There's, there's, something, there's something I could be doing. Like, those squirrels are running around like little lunatics, like messing with all those acorns and, like, the weather's getting colder. I know winter's coming. Like, I feel like there's something I should be doing, but I can't quite put my finger on it. And then when they get a, when they get an experience, you know, for the first time in foraging, maybe they just find some, you know, just some, some very simple thing that, 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 you know, someone they trust shows them and, and explains, yeah, yeah, you can eat this. And, and then it's that like light bulb over the head moment where, where you recognize, you know what, there, there is something to learn here. There is something that, that's missing. People tend to think of berries and mushrooms when referring to foraging, but it includes so much more, which is what I learned in your class. What else does it include, Tim? Yeah, so there, I mean, there's so many different food types. Where, where do we begin? The, 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 quick, the quick pop culture version of foraging is, oh, uh, nuts and berries or, or twigs and berries. I, keep, I get that a lot. People, people think I'm going to make them eat twigs and berries for some reason, but there's, there's tree nuts and these are a major, major calorie reserve for, for anybody who's, who's out there trying to find food in the wild. And they're, they're a staple food item of our ancestors, all these different tree nuts. There are wild vegetables in the summertime. Like right now there, there's, there's wild vegetables that we can go and harvest and of course, the berries. Generally, in in Virginia, from June all the way up into autumn, there are going to be different berries and and tree fruits as well. But there's edible inner bark from trees. There are roots. There are shoots. There are tubers. There are sprouts and and vine tips and all kinds of leaves. Um, there's more salad out there than than you would even believe, uh, especially in the springtime. It's all salad in the springtime, but. If you can think of a, a modern food, you know, a type of food, there's there's a wild food version of that and, and some way to, to, to make a kind of a, a mock-up of it. Um, the only thing we're hurting for in Virginia is chocolate and tomatoes. There, there, aren't a, <laughs> there aren't a whole lot of things that taste honestly like chocolate. Some things have like a cocoa note in their flavor profile, but yeah, there, there's no Hershey bar out in the woods and uh, there's nothing that you want to eat that that tastes like a tomato um there are some nightshade family members here in virginia but they are toxic uh like a lot of the nightshade family members which is where um tomatoes belong what are some examples of edible plants that might surprise people might surprise them you know i i think just in general the fact that you can't throw a hula hoop out into a, a field without encircling three or four or five edible plants. I think that's a surprise to most people. Yeah, just the just the number of lawn weeds that end up being safe, wholesome, useful edible plants. A, a lot of the stuff that the people try to eradicate from their lawn ends up being some of the better, more useful wild food and even wild medicine. Yeah, I was flipping through the book that you provided everyone in your course that has some examples of wild edibles. And there were a few things in there that surprised me, like cattails were one. Like, what do you do with cattails? What can't you do with them, Jessica? They're, they're, they're something uh, people have called that the Walmart of the woods. Um, although, you know, they don't grow in the woods. They like full sun. But uh, alliteration, it's fun. So cattail has something on there that we can eat. 
all four seasons. There are underground parts, you know, down in the mud in the wintertime. We can pull up these root stalks and get starch out of them. We can eat the shoots in the spring. In the summer, we can harvest the pollen. In the fall, we can look for little sprouts that are going to be next year's plants. So there's something there, um, not only as a food, but just useful things. You know, those, those brown heads that look like a burnt corn dog. Some, some foragers have gotten confused and thought that was something to eat, you know, and, and uh, every once in a while you see a meme of somebody smearing mustard all over that and, and trying to take a bite out of it like it is a corn dog. It's a bunch of fluff with seeds in there. And that fluff is a wonderful fire starter. So if you needed to ever light a fire, get your campfire going. That fluffy stuff is, is perfect for using um, as tinder for sparks or, or an open flame ignition method or, you know, whatever. So, so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a plant that has so many different uses and food is just part of that. Another one that surprised me, which I knew was edible, but I hear a lot of people act very surprised when they hear this one, but nettle because it, of its stinging qualities. Like usually people try to stay away from nettle and they're surprised to learn that that's actually edible. Yeah. Any plant that stings you like a bee is, is uh, going to gonna raise some red flags for people and, and, and rightfully so. But if you wear some thick leather gloves while you pick the nettle tops, and that could be in spring, summer, or or even you know later in the later in the um, season, early fall, wear some thick leather gloves. Use some scissors to snip them loose. Then we take those tender nettle tops. We can steam them, boil them, sauté them, bake them. Just heat them up somehow, and the cooking process is going to deactivate that sting, and you're left with a green, a cooked green that's a lot like spinach but has a ton of vitamins and minerals in it. What about the animals, Tim? Are we taking their food or how can we avoid foraging too much? That's a great question, Jessica. And I appreciate the fact that, that you're thinking about them. You know, foraging isn't just you going out there and swooping down on the landscape like a locust and devouring everything to the bare earth. We're just taking a little bit. And, and as an ethical forager, we want to make sure there's plenty for everybody else. That includes the animals, that includes us down the road, that includes future generations. So we don't ever want to take the last of something that's that's rare or, or threatened in any given area. We want to focus on the abundant things. And, you know, let's, let's also think about time. We're out there for a few minutes foraging, maybe an hour. Those animals are out there all day, all night, every day, all night, you know, all the time. Like they have all the time in the world to run everywhere and find all of the, all the different wild food that they can eat. And they eat stuff that we can't eat in many cases. Sometimes they eat stuff that's edible to people. And sometimes they eat stuff that is just edible to them. While it's, it's important to consider the other creatures that are, that are going to eat that wild food, two-legged, four-legged, you know, no-legged, whatever, it's, we would only make a drop in the bucket, you know, by taking a little bit of that food. I just recently got into foraging mushrooms and I follow along on some groups that are local to the area that are foraging for mushrooms in Virginia. And there seems to be some debate about what percentage you should be able to take. Is it 50%? Is it um, 75%? Do you have any input on that? <laughs> I have controversial input, Jessica. I take 0%. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I teach wild edible plants. These are these are organisms in the plant kingdom. Our okay. friendly fungi are in the fungal kingdom, an entirely different kingdom of life. Uh, and, and in some cases, they're as different from plants as animals are from plants. So um, while I do dabble in a little bit of mushroom hunting personally for my own personal consumption, I don't actually teach it. 
And, and so this is something that that is, in my mind, riskier than foraging for plants. And I know I'm going to get hate mail, and that's fine. Um, send it. Um, I know mushrooms offer many health benefits. That's that's awesome. I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve the right to get mine at the store. Uh, I'm gonna have mine brought to me on a pizza, and and I'm gonna <laughs> leave it at that. Um, uh, the, the risk to reward ratio is is not one that that I feel good about. And then if I show somebody a, a mushroom and then they go out and see something similar, you know, it can be really hard to differentiate one mushroom from another. And, and that's why I like plants so much more. I have so many more parts that I can use for identification purposes on a plant. You know, so much of that plant is above ground. So little of that organism is above ground on a mushroom. You know, it's like a, it's like a giant buried apple tree and only the apples pop up above the dirt. You know, there's so much hidden and, and the time of year can vary for, for when they grow. And, you know, mushrooms out of season is kind of a global concept for mushroom poisoning. And, you know, you get one wrong mushroom in your little bowl of mushrooms and, and then your liver starts to shut down, you know, and there, there are deadly mushrooms. Uh, there was a man in this, in the County I live in, um, he, it was in the ER, um, a couple years ago, just saw a cute little mushroom in his yard, popped it in his mouth, chewed it up, swallowed it went on mowing his grass and, and then got really sick and, and had to go to the hospital. So um, while, while I appreciate foraging for all different forms of, of food, um, that's one that I, I just simply won't teach. And just because the, the risks are, are so high. Well, I'm glad you brought up safety because that's a good segue into my next question for you. What safety precautions should people take before consuming wild plants? That is, that's the question of the day. So when I do a wild edible plant class, I walk people through a long list of guidelines. And the primary thing that we talk about is positive identification with a reputable field guide, some kind of, some kind of book or, or some kind of resource that will detail the structures that you should see on that plant and help you differentiate it from other plants. So, you know, for example, Peterson's Field Guide, that's my number one recommendation for people. And it has about 400 plants in it. And, in, and lucky for us in Virginia, it's based on plants east of the Mississippi. And so this book tells us exactly how to identify the, the, the plant, not just the family, not just the genus, down to the species level. And so um, when we go through that, that description in the book and, and we make sure that you know, the flower is the right color, the petals are in the right number, the leaves have the right arrangement, just down through that laundry list of, of, of points. If they all check yes, if you can tick all those boxes, then it is what you think it is. And some apps are helpful too. There, there are apps you can have on your phone and you snap a picture of it. And if, if you're just really struggling, or maybe you don't even have a book on you that has that plant in it, you know, it can, it can be a useful tool for, for researching further. But I wouldn't bet the farm on, you know, something that your phone said, you know, I, I, I like a book and, and being an author, you know, I understand there's some skin in the game when you write a book, like you're, you're really hanging yourself out there with that information forever. Like it has got to be correct. It's got to be right. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I'd recommend for my top safety tip is to go out there with a reputable field guide. And then if there's any doubt, even 1% doubt about that plant's identity, don't eat it, go find something else to eat. Go 7-Eleven. Just, just don't, don't eat it if, if there's any little red flag popping up in the back of your head that says, wait a minute, you know, this, it kind of looks like that thing Tim showed us in that class, which was awesome, but eh, 
I don't remember it being fuzzy and this thing's fuzzy. So I don't know, you know, any doubt, just don't eat it. Several years ago, I took a class on forest bathing and the person who was teaching the class was encouraging people to just pick leaves off the trees and off of bushes and to like feel them and smell them and then even taste them. And she told us not to be concerned about possibly poisoning yourself because there really isn't much out there that can hurt you. And then I took your class and found out that that is not even close to true. (laughs) One of the things that really stuck out to me was um, the potential to confuse wild carrot and is it poison hemlock is that am i getting it right you are getting it right yeah those two are man i mean you want to talk about like a good twin and an evil twin the the carrot is is an actual carrot like we literally have wild carrots growing here in virginia and they're biennial plants they live for two years the first year is just some leaves and a small root second year of life they start to grow a flower stalk and this is a flower stalk that a lot of people know by a different name. Queen Anne's lace is wild carrot. And for a lot of people, their eyes open real wide and they're like, what? Wait, you know, yeah, yeah. So Queen Anne's lace is just a, a simple um, common name for wild carrot. Daucus carata is the scientific name. It's got carrot tucked into the species name. Uh, it literally says carrot uh, there in the name, but this plant has a, a white flat top flower cluster when it's in bloom. And this looks a whole lot like poison hemlock and also fool's parsley. And both of those species are deadly if consumed. If we, if we consume any part of that plant, even to crush the leaf between your fingers, it could cause numbness in the skin and it could cause respiratory distress. Um, so I advise my students just don't even touch it. Like Peterson's Field Guide talks about how bad it smells, you know, if you crush it. Hey, let's not crush it. Um, let's learn what it looks like visually and use that visual ID as our only point of identification. But yeah, they're, they're tricky. You know, if, if, we, if we think we're pulling up a wild carrot and we pull up a, a wild hemlock and throw that in the stew pot, everybody who eats that is going to die. Uh, it's going to take about a half a day and, and they're going to be dead unless you have access to definitive, like real-time medical care. Like if they can get to a hospital, they can be saved. But if you're just out in the middle of nowhere, let's say you hiked a whole day out into the wilderness and then made some carrot soup, but it wasn't carrot. Yeah, that's going to be your final resting place out there in the wilderness. And so I, you know, I don't want to oversell it. Like, you know, I don't want to scare everybody away from foraging, but you need to understand that there's a couple of bad guys out there and they can kill. They have a confirmed body count. So there are some things out there that we don't want to eat. There are plants we don't even want to touch. I mean, what about poison ivy? You know, what if you're what if you're you know rolling around in a pile of that for your um, outdoor experience, um, or you forget toilet paper and, and decide to grab some poison ivy leaves? You know, there are plants out there that that we don't want to touch. Um, not just stinging nettle, um, poison ivy, poison oak, poison sumac, uh, invasive species now too. Things like giant hogweed. This this has a sap that could be blinding if you got it in your eyes and, and raise huge welts uh, on your skin. So yeah, not every plant is your buddy. I think that was probably the single most important thing that I learned that day, because when you pointed that out, I realized that I have picked that before and I've even stuck the flower in my hair. (laughs) I don't even even want to admit that I did that. It was just a stupid thing. It was like, oh, here's something that looks pretty. And I picked it and I stuck it in my hair and thank God nothing happened. Yeah, yeah, and and you know what? It's it's easy to confuse the poison hemlock and fool's parsley for the wild carrot. 
Um, there's some tiny structural details that are different underneath the flower. The, the stems, the stems on a wild carrot will be hairy and the stems on a, a fool's parsley and poison hemlock will be smooth. Those will be totally hairless. But aside from those tiny differences, the leaves look the same. The flowers look the same. The height can be the same. They can grow in exactly the same habitat. They could be growing side by side. And, and so we just need to look at every single plant, each plant, before we pick it and, and try to eat it. Camping season is back and I'm ready to hit the trails in my brand new camping hammock by Hennessy Hammock. Hennessy offers a variety of camping hammock sizes and styles to fit your needs. I opted for the ultralight backpacker classic with a unique and innovative bottom entry design that makes it easier for me to get in and out of the hammock and it prevents those pesky bugs from following me inside. Hennessy also offers the zippered side entry model for those who prefer the traditional style. Every Hennessy hammock features a patented structural ridgeline for easy setup, exceptionally strong suspension ropes, a matching asymmetrical waterproof rainfly, tightly woven mesh to keep even the smallest pests out, high density fabric so mosquitoes won't bite through the hammock, and it even has a gear pocket to hold your phone, light, book, and other belongings inside the hammock. I've tried a lot of camping beds and sleeping options over the years that have been uncomfortable and leave me stiff, tired, and cranky in the morning. With my new Hennessy hammock, all these problems have been solved. I got the best night's sleep outdoors that I've ever had. The light pack weight and easy setup makes this hammock the perfect option for all my camping and backpacking needs. It's no wonder Hennessy hammocks are called the coolest tent in the world. Ready for your best night under the stars? Click on Hennessy Hammock in the show notes of your listening app to visit HennessyHammock.com. Well, let's move away from the scary things and (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about some things that are easy to identify that are also popular wild edibles that people tend to look for. Yeah. So you know what? Um, one One of the easiest ones that people already know, they just may not realize they know it, is dandelion. Dandelion is a non-native in invasive species. It's, it's here from the old world, but I don't think people brought it here to be a pest. And I don't think they brought it here on accident. This wasn't just some weed seed that was in the hay for the first cattle and horses that, that were brought to the new world. This is a plant people brought on purpose. And so dandelion is edible from the flower all the way down to the bottom of the root. You can prepare it in lots of different ways. And it's available spring, summer, fall. I've even found it growing in winter in little protected areas. So we can throw the flowers in a salad. We can put the leaves in our salad. We can take the root and, and throw it in a soup as a, as a vegetable item, as a, you know, like a root crop food item. And we can roast the root and make a coffee alternative. I have to choose my language carefully. It's an alternative. It's not a substitute. There's no caffeine in it. But when you roast the root, it does have a coffee-like, you know, kind of coffee-adjacent uh, set of flavors. Hmm. And, and there are other ways we can prepare dandelion as well. And this is something that, that's everywhere. I mean, you know, when you talk about, like, throwing the hula hoop out into a field, like, there's almost always a dandelion, you know, in, in, you know within arm's reach somewhere. And then the cattail we mentioned earlier, that's one that's, that's very easy to identify. Cattails growing in swamps with, with that brown corn dog looking seed head at the top. Acorns are another one. This is a huge staple food item from the past. Our ancestors lived off of acorns all the way around the Northern Hemisphere. 
you know, if, if we've studied, if we studied Native American history and Native American culture, there's loads of references for acorn use from the West Coast all the way back here to the East Coast. But these aren't the only people, these aren't the only ancestors that used acorns. So in Europe and also in Asia and even in Northwestern Africa, people have been using acorns kind of like the way we use today, maybe wheat or rice or corn as a staple food item. So you'd harvest it as much as you could once a year when it's available. You'd, you'd process it, you'd dry it, you'd prepare it for storage, and then you'd store it and ration it and have some throughout the rest of the year until the acorns come again. And so this is a, a high food value, wild food, but it does have to be processed. And, and so that's another, um, that's another facet of foraging that, that can be a little daunting to people, a little bit confusing. When, when we have certain foods that are very generous and, and we can eat them in any way we imagine, it, it kind of spoils us. Other foods, we've got to do some work. So with acorns, we crack the shell off because the shell's waterproof. We want to get rid of that. When we crack the shell off, you just break it with a rock or a hammer, whatever you have. And that cracks the nut meat inside into little pieces. We take those pieces and soak them in water. And if it's a low bitterness species of acorn, like a white oak or a chestnut oak, we might only have to soak it in some warm water for a couple hours, maybe change the water two or three times. And if it's safe, drinkable water, like the water from your home, then you can do a little taste test of the acorn. Once the bitterness is gone, then it's ready to turn into people food. And so we could roast those little nut pieces and eat them like, like roasted peanuts. We could grind them into powder and use it as flour and, and turn it into different baked goods. It's a gluten-free flour, um, although it's not, you know, it's not like the perfect flour. Anybody with nut allergies will want to be cautious. There are people who are allergic to acorns, and that's something that one only finds out the hard way. But, um, you know, it's not a perfect food. But a pound of acorns is going to give you roughly 2,000 calories, depending on the species. And that 2,000 calories comes from a beautiful profile of protein, fat, and carbs. And so people have called this the bread of the woods, you know, throughout different languages and cultures for millennia. You know, this was bread before bread got invented. And, and there's lots of different ways to prepare it. They are very bitter when they first come out of their shell. They're bitter with tannic acid. Tannic acid is an irritant to the digestive tract. It'll upset your stomach. It'll upset your intestines. But tannic acid is water-soluble, and that's why we soak it in water and dump the water away. Now, that water is even useful. That could be used on our skin for, uh, for a healing effect. It will soothe inflammation. It'll help with rashes. It's the number one ingredient for ingrown toenail remover. Like all these odd little uses come up when we start to learn more about the plants. But yeah, um, you know, you, you really, you can't go outside without stumbling across something in a forest, in a field, um, even in, you know, cracks in the sidewalk in the city. There's still plants popping up. I probably don't want to eat them there, but there's wild food everywhere for, for those that take the time to learn about it. Wow. Well, that explains why I got sick eating acorns when I was a kid. I had no idea that you needed to soak them first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that gets a lot of people. They, they, actually, they actually believe that the acorn is poisonous uh, just because they have symptoms of nausea, you know, maybe some, some digestive distress on beyond that. But, um, but yeah, it, it's, just a, it's just a simple substance that we have all the time. There's tannic acid in wine. There's tannic acid in chocolate. You know, um, the thing that makes black tea brown is tannic acid. 
So we have it all the time, but it, there's a lot in the acorns and it doesn't take much of that to upset your stomach. Mm-hmm. So um, it's something that we just have to get rid of and, and then we can even use it as medicine. Yeah, I wish I had known that. When I was in sixth grade, we were reading the book, My Side of the Mountain, Mm -hmm. and the main character in there makes acorn pancakes. And so as part of my book report, I made my own acorn pancakes following the exact steps that the the character had taken in the book, and it didn't turn out so well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Sometimes uh, life imitating art uh, doesn't go so well. But but you know what, you just yeah, you just have to adjust your sights correctly. So it's a gluten free flour. And and more and more people are experienced with that now. You know, it doesn't hold together like a wheat flour. It, it doesn't have all the all the binding stuff. And and so you just have to adjust your sights accordingly. So acorn cookies, that is on point. Because oh, wow. cookies cookies are supposed to be crumbly, right? So so this dry, crumbly thing, you know, you, you take the acorn flour, we we follow pretty much any cookie recipe. We're gonna add sugar and spices and all the yummy stuff. And then we take the bland acorn flour. You know, acorns are either bitter or bland. And and so once we get rid of the bitterness, it's just a bland food. But but then we flavor it back up with some cookie ingredients, bake them till they're golden brown and crispy. And and now we have a familiar food from a wild ingredient. And, and so stuff like this can can make foraging matter more, you know, and it can get people to try wild food that that might otherwise turn their nose up at it and say, no, no, I'm not eating that. But hey, try it. You know, I, I did some pine bark cookies uh, one winter after Christmas, and it's the inner bark of the pine. I got to cl- <laughs> clarify that. Okay, we're not scraping off the, the crusty outer gray bark. That's just cork, essentially, and it's, it's a protective structure for the tree. But when you, when you shave through that layer and get down to this really soft inner layer of bark right before you hit wood, then you grind that, you dry it, grind it into a powder, and then that can be used in in baked goods. And so I did some uh, pine, I did some pine bark oatmeal cookies, and so they were kind of like oatmeal cookies, but there was a large percentage of pine bark in there. And uh, my dad, who you know would forage for some stuff back in the day, um, but but generally was was kind of squeamish about this stuff. Um, he ate one and, and liked it, you know. And so I was like, okay, you know, I, I hid wild food and and some normal people food and. <laughs> and I, I tricked my dad into eating it and, and everything. Yeah, he liked it okay. But um, yeah, so, you know, it's it's kind of a, it could be a gateway to the outdoors for some yeah. people. Yeah, or, you, or you can just impress your friends at the holidays. <laughs> if you show oh, up yeah. with acorn and pine bark cookies, it, yeah. who knows what people will say, but that sounds awesome. I think I might give that a try this year. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It's super easy. Yeah, just follow your normal oatmeal cookie recipe and swap out the percentage of pine bark flour for oatmeal that you feel confident with. I usually do 50-50, but um, but yeah, your results may vary. <laughs> <laughs> now, that does remind me a little bit of something that you told us during the class, which is that every time you try a new plant that you've not had before, you should only be trying a little bit at a time. And I think you also said only one at a time, so that if you do experience any sort of distress, that you can actually know which plant caused it. Is that right? That's right, Jessica. Yeah, I, I like to, you know, I like to just play it safe on this. And so we don't know what we're allergic to until we've had it for the first time. And, and you know, I've had students tell me, yeah, I, I'm allergic to acorns. I'm like, really? Like, how'd you find that out? I was like, well, I ate some acorns, you know, got sick. So um, we're all different. You know, we all have different body chemistry and, and even the plants are going to be different. So there's a lot of difference between a, a white oak and a chestnut oak. And, and so, yeah, I would recommend that a person try a, a small portion of a new food 
and just one new food per day, just in case they had some kind of unusual, uncommon reaction. You know, most of these wild plants in the, in the edible plant field guide are widely tolerated. Almost everyone can eat them, but every once in a while, you just will have a plant that that's not going to be friendly to you. And, and so we don't want to eat 10 new plants and have one make us sick and not know which one did it. Are there seasons that are better for foraging than others? Depends on whether you want to have enough calories to live or not. So spring has long been regarded as the starving season. And while there's green growth and, and abundant edible plants everywhere around you, it's all watery, low-calorie growth. And so here we are at the tail end of winter. You know, spring comes in and, and you have all this green growth everywhere, but it's all iceberg lettuce. Like you could starve to death if somebody chained you up in a field of iceberg lettuce. You know, there's just no calories there. It's just water. And so spring is a great time for foraging because of the diversity. There are more species available in the springtime. But I hope you like salad because that's pretty much what it's going to be. Now, when we get into summer, then we start to get more nutrient-dense food. We have all the different berries that come on starting in Virginia in June and, and then running through July and even into August. And we have fruits coming in. So we'll have wild cherries, pawpaws. There's a lot of berries and fruits throughout the warmer weather and even persisting into fall. And so in fall, we get the calorie cash cow of the tree nuts plus berries. And we still have, we have seeds that we can eat, different types of wild grain seeds. Those can be ground into a flour, added to different foods. We'll have um, still some lingering salad stuff. And there's always tea. Jessica, every day of the year, 365 days a year, there are many tea plants that you can go out and collect. So we could make tea out of all different kinds of leaves, twigs, bark, roots. There's always something to make tea. But the bad news is tea doesn't have any calories, you know, maybe two calories per cup if you're lucky and, and closer to zero calories per cup. But it's something that can be flavorful. It's something that can break up monotony. It's something that can give you a little bit of morale. Like, hey, I feel like I got something done. You know, I may not have, um, you know, found any major food source, but at least I got a cup of tea. And, and so that's something that's available every day out of the year. Well, I'm a tea snob the way some people are wine snobs. So that's good news for me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You can have your choice of, of things to like and, and then strongly dislike. Uh, yeah. So are there rules that apply to foraging on public lands? Like what do people need to know if they want to start foraging as far as where they can forage and will they get in trouble if they're foraging in certain places? That is a phenomenal question and one that is not asked very often. So I do most of my foraging on private property. I, I'm blessed I have access to different places that, that I can collect from. And not everybody has that. And, and, and I recognize that and, and you know, really appreciate what I have. And so for those who don't own property, that's okay. You can still go on public lands. So wildlife management areas are, are going to be places where people can go and collect berries, mushrooms, different above ground foraging items. Um, what they require is that you don't disturb any woody plants. You know, you're not like chopping down trees or, or, you know, chopping off branches and you're absolutely not digging up roots. They, they want the plants to, to live and persist. And if we start digging up roots, we're killing plants. And, and so um, I would encourage people to check their local regulations 
there, there will be something, if you look through the fine print long enough, there will be something that says, you know, forging is allowed here or not allowed there. We aren't going to be taking anything from national parks. That's, that's a pretty consistent, hard no. You're not taking anything out of there. But your state parks will vary. So, for example, Sky Meadow State Park in Delaplane, Virginia, does allow foraging. And, and their general rule is that you can take a, a modest amount and they qualify that as a handful or two, especially when it comes to berries. So you could take a handful or two of r- renewable, sustainable, forageable items. And so that's the like the pawpaw fruits in, in late summer. That's the berries in midsummer. Um, and so we can take that and they want you to use it, eat it, enjoy it on site. They don't want people coming in, taking stuff away. Um, they want you to, to, you know, enjoy the landscape and, and use it on site. But um, yeah, I encourage anybody to, to either speak to a landowner or speak to the, the management of a, a park or, or public land and just make sure that they're in the right. Make sure it's okay that you can, you can collect from there important information before people start picking and definitely not selling to their local farmer's market or, or right, local farm yeah. to table restaurants. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's frowned on. You know, you, you go out there and, and bring out a couple buckets of morels and you go sell them to a restaurant and, you know, you made your gas money for the day and then some, but you know, that's, that's not something you're supposed to do at, at the state park. Um, and, and it's probably frowned upon in a lot of other places too. I would think so. Indigenous people in Virginia were foragers. Do you know which native plants they foraged? Yeah. So uh, the the landscape of pre-Columbian America was very different. We have a lot of plants here now that came from other parts of the world. And so a lot of the stuff that, that people would forage today, these were not available 500 years ago. But back in the day, all the different oak species that, that, um, that we can enjoy today, those were still here. The walnut trees were still here. All the different uh, shrubs and bushes that, that I like to take advantage of so much, uh, things like spice bush and sassafras, those are all native species. Those were all here. And so there, there were many wild foods that, that our native ancestors would take advantage of, and they're still here today. And, and that's a wonderful link with, with history. We're, we're part Powhatan on my dad's side. And, and this is something that, you know, I, I, I really, uh, I really feel strongly about. I, I think people should, should know how their ancestors lived and how other people's ancestors lived to, to really appreciate what we have today. Wow. Tim, I didn't know that about your background, but it makes perfect sense to me now. <laughs> it, yeah, it kind of fits. You know, um, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips, uh, the actor, he was he was in an interview one time and uh, they said, so, you know, wh- what part Indian are you? And he, he lifts his leg up and he's like, oh, this part here, just below the knee. And I, I thought that was a really funny, like, like kind of smart aleck remark to this to this guy. You know, my version of that, like if anybody asks I, I'm not kidding you. I'm going to point to my heart. Like that's what part Indian I am. And, and so this is something that, that is just near and dear to me ever since I was the tiniest little kid, I could not get enough of native American culture, like history, technology. I, I always wanted to know like, what was it like? Like, how did we live then? Like, what, what, what did we do all day? You know? And, and that's something that, that we can all, identify with 
we all had ancestors who lived really close to nature. You know, some of them were further back and some of them were not so far back in history, but we all have that heritage. We all have those ancestors who went out there and found their food in the wild instead of going and getting it from a store. And, and yeah, the store has more stuff in it. Okay. And it's always got the same stuff in it. The landscape changes day by day, season by season. But this is, this is our, this is our, our birthright. This is something that we all have uh, in the family tree. And uh, I get really excited when I can lead people back to that. And how cool that you are teaching people those same skills that were used many hundreds and thousands of years ago today. That's that's awesome, Tim. Um, and since I'm such a history nerd, is there any other interesting Virginia history related to wild edibles? You know, there was a there was a failed attempt to wipe out Jamestown, the Jamestown settlement. Yeah. So so the story goes that the native leaders sent a couple canoe loads of water hemlock, which is a poison hemlock relative. And this is something that that I believe they were hoping that the Jamestown settlers would enjoy as a vegetable. But for whatever reason, the 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 Jamestown colonists would not eat this plant even though they, they had major food shortages and, and had a lot of different, lot of different problems. And I, I like to imagine it's because the, the warriors were maybe lifting it up with sticks and just kind of like, you know, like turning their head aside and, and kind of like shoving it at the colonists and, and not wanting to touch it. You know, I, I bet the body language gave it away because here's something that you don't even want to get the juice on your skin. You know, how are you going to cut a canoe load of it and then, and then hand it over to someone else and, and trick them into eating it. Um, but yeah, that's a, a, a wacky, just kind of a wacky um, story for, for um, how the wild plants um, were involved in a, essentially a, an extermination plot um, by native people to, to wipe out these, these foreign invaders. Oh, wow, that is interesting. There was also another interesting story that I heard you tell about the pawpaws, but I don't remember the story. Do you remember what it was? Yeah, when when Lewis and Clark took their famous expedition to to go west and and, and survey the land and try to find that that western western passage, they ran out of food and they were banking on being able to trade lightweight trade goods for food along the way. It was a smart strategy. They thought, okay, well, we'll just bring little you know necklaces and 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 bracelets and lightweight things, things that would have a lot of value, but we would trade for heavy, you know, food that we, we don't want to carry like, you know, months and months worth of food on our backs, but we can carry a sack of beads. And, and if we can trade those for food along the way, then, you know, we're, we're going to be in the clear, but they hit a stretch of, of population who did not want to talk to them, did not want to trade with them, did not, did not want anything to do with them. And so their plan to get fed, buying their way across the country with beads backfired. And so um, for a two-week stretch, they pretty much just ate pawpaw fruit as they were headed through the Ohio Valley. So this is a native tree with an almost tropical-looking fruit. And in fact, the tree does have tropical heritage. It's the northernmost member of the custard apple family, which is primarily a tropical tree and shrub family. And so there's this great big mango-looking fruit hanging on trees in Virginia and on further west uh, in the late summer and early fall. And so this is a, a, a food staple item for people who are out in the wild and, and for our ancestors as well. 
just a just an eight ounce cup of the pawpaw pulp, and and that's just a small pawpaw would give you that much pulp. That pulp is going to be somewhere around eighty calories. It's going to have potassium, vitamin A, vitamin C, all kinds of all kinds of minerals and 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 micronutrients, and a very sweet flavor. Um, now it is easy to get sick of them. Like you wouldn't want to eat them all day every day. They're they're almost sickly sweet. But it's something that, that the expedition was able to to find, identify, eat, and live off of for a brief period of time. That's interesting. This fall, when the pawpaws are ripe, I'm going to be trying to make um, bread. Like, like you would make banana bread, but I'm going to make pawpaw bread. I've, I've seen people doing that. I've wanted to do it, so I want to try that out. Yeah, that's a yummy one. Um, and, and it's actually late summer to early fall, depending on the latitude and also the elevation. So you could start looking in mid-August for pawpaws and, and then just keep your watch. I found them as late as October, but, but most of them are going to hit usually in, in August or early September. All right, Tim. Well, we're going to wrap this up pretty soon, but where can people learn more about foraging if they want more information? You know, I, I got started by hitting my local library. I'd go check out wild edible plant books from the library and drag them through the woods and fields and, and, uh, and, and use those to, to, to learn, you know, to learn a lot of, of what I know now. And uh, another place people can learn more about foraging is by taking a class with a local expert. So wherever you are, if you're here in Virginia or if you're in another state or another country, see if you can find a local foraging instructor, someone who can actually take you out into the outdoors and show you how to identify the wild resources that are all around you. So for those here in Virginia or those who aren't scared to travel, I run wild edible plant classes every season of the year, and I run them at two different locations, my home property and also Sky Meadows State Park in Delaplaine, Virginia. And folks can find out more about that by going to advancedsurvivaltraining.com. So that's advanced with a D survivaltraining.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram with that same handle, advanced survival training. There's two questions that I always ask my listeners. And one of them is what is one piece of gear you can't live without? That's easy. A Mora knife, not just any knife. I want a Mora knife. These Swedish wood carving knives are so cheap and so good. And I do everything with it. Like I, I literally like, you know, I cut up deer and I open my mail and everything in between. Uh, and so if it comes down to like a survival tool, that's the one thing I want is, is that wood carving knife. What is it called again? Mora knife. So it's M-O-R-A-K-N-I-V. And so there's, there's, uh, there's one company in Sweden that's, that's kicking out Mora knives and somebody can get just a basic model. It's called the Mora knife companion for under 20 bucks. And the, right. the, the edge geometry is just absolutely perfect for wood carving. And I don't make a dime for telling you that. I'm not like a brand advocate or, you know, some kind of ambassador or something. I just love them. Uh, and that's what I recommend for my students. Excellent. Good to know. And what is your next big Virginia outdoor adventure? My next big outdoor adventure is to teach a group of special operations forces personnel how to survive in the woods with absolutely nothing. Uh, and that's something that, that has become a, a high point in my career to have, have an opportunity to work with um, uh, that community. Um, humble badasses. Um, that's, that's all I can say. But, but yeah, we're going to go out and learn how to live in case they get separated from their gear and, and how to live with just the things that nature provides. 
That's so amazing that you do that, Tim. Thank you so much again for being a guest on Virginia Outdoor Adventures. I learned so much from you both in this conversation and in the class that you allowed me to join not too long ago. And uh, I just think it's such an awesome, it's an awesome way for people to learn about things that are right, that are all around them that they might not have even known were there. So thank you for sharing your wisdom and your insight. And maybe you can uh, come on back on the show in the future and we could talk about some other survival skills that we didn't have time to address today. I would love that, Jessica. That would be fun. Well, thanks so much, Tim. Adventure on. Links and resources to everything discussed today are in the notes section of your listening app and on the website at virginiaoutdooradventures.com. If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting me. The easiest and most impactful thing you can do is visit buymeacoffee.com backslash Jessica Bowser, where you can buy me a virtual coffee or sign up for a membership and receive a Virginia Outdoor Adventures vinyl sticker and a shout out on the show. I'm on a mission to build an outdoor community right here in Virginia. A donation or membership means you're supporting a local community of outdoor adventurers, a diverse platform that elevates everyone's voice, a resource of activities and locations close to home, local Virginia businesses, and women in podcasting and the outdoor industry. You can also support me by subscribing to the show on your listening app. Help spread the word by sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media. Last but not least, leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I love hearing from my listeners. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Virginia Outdoor Adventures or on the website virginiaoutdooradventures.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, adventure on. Adventure on.